you guys can hear me, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the birth of Jesus, um, celebrating that last week. Very um, excited about the new year, what you might have in store for us. We thank you, Lord, that you're the the Lord of new beginnings, beginning with our spiritual birth in Christ. I do pray that in this uh, coming year, um, if you are to tarry, that you would just get your way in our lives. Um, you would get your way at Sugarland Bible Church. And uh, just pray that um, you'll be with us today as we study your word, both in Sunday school and the main service that follows. Thank you for all the classes and classrooms meeting with the children's classes, youth classes. I pray you'll be with all of those. And really, Lord, I just pray you would help us to keep our focus on you in the new year. In preparation for your ministry of teaching and illumination to us, we're going to just take a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you, if need be, not to restore our position, but to restore broken fellowship if necessary so that we can receive uh, unhindered from your Holy Spirit today. We remain thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and just really the comprehensiveness of your plan of salvation for us, how you've left uh, no stone unturned and you've provided for us in every way possible so that we can have a relationship with you. I pray that you'll be with us this morning as we study. We lift these things up in Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. Well, if you all could kindly, in this last uh, Sunday of December, last Sunday of 2023, uh, open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. And in our Sunday school hour, we're continuing our verse-by-verse teaching through Second Thessalonians. Having um, arrived at what I think is the heart of the letter of Second Thessalonians, right here in chapter two, verses one through twelve, Paul the apostle has been pushed out of Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, having uh, founded the church there in Thessalonica, having won a great many people, many many Gentiles predominantly to the Lord. And Paul was so successful that the unbelieving Jews in the, in the area didn't like it, and they stirred up trouble against Paul, which pushed him down south into Corinth. And it's in Corinth, maybe no more than six months to a year later, that he discovers a problem. The problem is stated in verse 2. Uh, he says, he makes reference to the problem 
that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by spirit or message or letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, which is, as we've defined it, a reference to the tribulation period, the day of the Lord has come. Paul had taught them very clearly that they would escape the tribulation period, and they received this forged letter allegedly coming from Paul. It didn't come from Paul, because that's what a forgery is. It's a fake letter. And if you understand these fake letters, um, you'll understand chapter 3, verse 17, what he says there how he writes everything with his own handwriting and insignia. That's why he says that, because he's trying to mitigate these forgeries. He's trying to help them discern the true Paul from fake Pauls. So we have fake news today and things like that. Well, there was like fake apostles and <laughs> fake fake epistles, etc., So this forgery came into their midst and they thought, well, uh, from the forgery, we are in the tribulation period. So Paul, in verses 3 through 12, answers the issue by saying, you're not in the tribulation period because if you were in the tribulation period, you would see essentially five things that you have not seen. And no one can say they're in the tribulation period until they see these five things. So these are definitive markers. So this is useful to us because we have many people today um, on the Internet saying we're in the day of the Lord, we're in the tribulation period. And you can use these signposts to say, no, we're not in the tribulation period, because if we were in the tribulation period, here's what you would see, what you're not seeing. So he lays out five things. The first is the departure. The departure hasn't happened, and we spent, I think, nine lessons trying to argue that the departure is a synonym for the rapture. And his point is, we're not in the tribulation period because you're still here. That's that's what he's trying to say. The departure has not transpired. The second thing he points to is the coming of the lawless one, or the Antichrist, and his activity in the Jewish temple. So notice, if you will, verse 4, where we pick it up. We've studied a lot of verse 4, but not all of it. It says, Of this coming Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And here's the part I'd like to focus on today. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Uh, The Greek word for temple there is naos, displaying himself as being God. And Paul says, you haven't seen anything like this happening. So you can't say we're in the tribulation period. So there's very little doubt what Paul is referencing. He's referencing Daniel 9.27, which is the definitive verse that lays out the tribulation period scheme or order of events. 
It says, he will make a firm covenant with the many, that's Israel, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he, that's Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Notice the expression, in the middle of the week. Uh, the week there is a unit not of seven days like we're used to, but a unit of seven years. So something is going to happen right in the middle of that seven-year tribulation period, which you Thessalonians have not seen yet. So Daniel 9.27 tells us how long the tribulation period will be, seven years. It tells us what will start it. There be some sort of treaty, peace treaty of some kind between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. Daniel 9.27 tells us what's going to happen right at the midpoint, the desecration of the Jewish temple. And then Daniel 9.27 tells us what's going to happen at the end, the second advent of Jesus. And when you sort of put that together with the book of Revelation, here's what the whole thing looks like. Uh, The first half, you'll see the seal judgments and trumpet judgments. And right in the middle of it, the, the beast or the Antichrist will desolate or desecrate the Jewish temple. Then you'll have the bold judgments in the second half of the tribulation period. And then Jesus will touch down on planet Earth in his second advent. So the big issue is what in the world does it mean here when it says the Antichrist will set up uh, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. We would really have no idea what that phrase means were it not for the fact that Daniel has already used the phrase of a earlier historical event. So in Daniel 11.31, Daniel takes that expression, the abomination of desolation, and applies it to something that from our time period we can see already transpired. Daniel 11.31 says, Forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary and the fortress, and do away with regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, in our last study together, prior to uh, Christmas Eve Sunday, I was trying to show you that what Daniel is talking about is something that Antiochus Epiphanes did during the intertestamental time period. Daniel made a prediction that was fulfilled 400 years later, And we know how it was fulfilled because we have the historical books of 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. But essentially what happened is Antiochus Epiphanes went into the Jewish temple about 167 B.C. He desecrated it by setting up an image in the temple. The image was not an image of himself, but it was an image of Zeus. He told the Jews you can't offer sacrifices anymore in your temple. He banned uh, the practice of the Jewish scriptures. You can't have those anymore. 
He banned um, the practice of Jewish circumcision. And Antiochus Epiphanes really hated the Jews because Antiochus was all about Hellenism, creating a, a universal Greek culture. Uh, he was the first, not the first, but he was what you, we would call a globalist. Um, he wanted to impose this Greek culture on everybody, and the problem is these Jews were in the way because they had their own language and they had their own religion and they had their own rituals, and, and he, he hated the Jews because of this. And so Daniel says he's going to go into the Jewish temple, which at that time had been rebuilt by the uh, returnees from the captivity, and he will desecrate it. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says, That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived other than Jesus, and unfortunately in the last third or so of his life, he didn't act very wise, but he had a lot of wisdom that God gave him. He talks in the book of Ecclesiastes about how history is cyclical. In other words, things that have already happened in the end time will be recapitulated but on a much bigger platform, a much bigger stage. So that is how to understand this strange expression, abomination of desolation. We would have no understanding of it had Daniel 11 verse 31 not applied it to Antiochus. But because we have a historical record and can look back to what Antiochus did, we can see that Daniel, when he applies this expression to the future Antichrist, Antichrist is going to do virtually the same thing that Antiochus did, but it'll be bigger. It'll be a bigger platform. He's going to go into the Jewish temple. He's going to set up an image in the temple. Now, the image won't be of Zeus. The image will be to himself. And you have a description of that in Revelation 13, verse 15, which I'll read to you in just a minute. Uh, he will do the same things that Antiochus did, take away Jewish prayer books, take away the ritual of Jewish circumcision. And this is going to be very unsettling for the nation of Israel because up to that midpoint, when Antichrist replicates what Antiochus did, they will think that he is their savior. Because he is the he is the he that made the covenant with them, guaranteeing their security. But he breaks his word to them halfway through. Um, typical politician, right? Uh, say one thing, do another. Uh, and so, and this is actually part of the design of God to bring Israel to faith, because you can't fill up a cup that's already full, right? So the agenda of God, and really this is the agenda of God in all of our lives when you think about it, is to take away these sort of false securities that we're trusting in. He, he kicks them out from under us. 
I notice he's really good at it, by the way. And to the point where we say, well, um, I guess I'm going to have to trust the Lord. Nothing else is working. And the Lord says, two thumbs up. That's the reaction I wanted the whole time. Except he's going to do this nationally for a nation. No other nation gets this special treatment other than Israel because Israel has a covenant with God. Not a covenant made by Israel to God, but a covenant made by God to Israel. It's the only nation that has this. Genesis 15 verse 18 says, In those days, in the days of Abram, God made a covenant with doesn't say Israel yet, but we know who he's speaking of as the name Israel is developed throughout the book of Genesis to Abram's descendants. And this is the, essentially what the tool that God is going to use to bring his nation to saving faith. When they see the temple desecrated, they will remember what Antiochus did to them. Because Hanukkah... Feast of Lights, Feast of Dedication, which the Jews still celebrate. They celebrate at this time of the year, around our Christmas time. Is set up to commemorate the deliverance of the Lord from Antiochus. So they all, they all know who Antiochus was. They all know what he did to them. And when they enter into the deal of the century with the Antichrist, and the Antichrist replicates midway through the tribulation period, what one of their great villains in history has already done to them, Antiochus, suddenly the eyes are opened and they realize that they've been trusting in the wrong person and in the wrong thing. And their Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, came 2,000 years ago. And it's kind of interesting as Paul develops this teaching, the temple was still standing. So we can date the Thessalonian letters about A.D. 51. It would be another 19 years, roughly, until the Romans would destroy the um, the Jewish temple, the city and the sanctuary, which they did in the horrific events of A.D. 70. And so Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, is probably referring to the Jewish temple that was still functioning. And he's basically saying, have you seen that desecrated by anybody? the way Daniel describes it? The answer is no. And so Paul's point in bringing all of this up is, well, then you're not in the tribulation period. You're not in the tribulation period until the departure has happened, number one, and until the temple is desecrated, number two. And then he's going to give three more signposts uh, that we will be studying in, in subsequent teachings. But right now I wanted to kind of drill down on this temple or the naos, there are, therefore, in Jewish history, four temples, two past, um, two future. The first temple was built by Solomon, the third king of the United Kingdom, And he was allowed to build that temple because unlike his father David, who had blood on his hands and was a man of war, Solomon, and even in the word Solomon, you'll recognize the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. 
Solomon was not a man of war, so David prepared the temple for the temple, and Solomon actually built it. He started building it in 966 B.C., and you're saying, well, where do you get that figure from? Jot down 1 Kings 6, verse 1, and you'll see it. 966 B.C., Solomon started building temple number 1. And that was a beautiful temple. The Shekinah glory of God entered that temple. And essentially what happened is that temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. on the eve of the Babylonian captivity. So that temple lasted for centuries. It lasted from the beginning of the building in 966 B.C., until Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed it on the eve of the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. And then the nation of Israel went into the captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They came out of that captivity, not all of them, some of them stayed, But there's a remnant that began to trickle back into the land following the 70-year captivity. And one of their tasks was to rebuild the temple. And it was kind of a tough project for them to get moving. They were sort of more interested in their own homes. You know, I don't want to, don't bother me with the temple. I'm working on my driveway here. I'm putting a jacuzzi in. I'm putting in a sauna, a tennis court. Don't bother me with the temple. And that's where God raises up Haggai and Zechariah to sort of kick them in the backside to get them moving on this temple project. But that temple was rebuilt by the returnees. And it really wasn't much to look at when they rebuilt it. The older men, remembering the majesty of Solomon's temple, started to cry because it was so pitiful compared to what they remembered And the younger generation was like, this is great, we love it, because they had no (laughs) remembrance of what Solomon's temple was like. And that was a temple that was later renovated by Herod, just before the time of Christ. You'll see that in John 2.20. And that's the temple that Jesus is interacting with in his earthly ministry. So, you know, when he was 12 years old and... Uh, you know, was confounding the religious leaders with his wisdom in the temple. That's what temple it's talking about. It's talking about temple number two. And that's the temple that Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of and said, throw yourself off. Uh, That's the temple that Jesus drove the money changers out of, I think, twice. I think Jesus did that twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end. And that temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. That was part of the covenant penalty against the nation of Israel nationally for rejecting their king. God says if you reject the king, then the cycles of discipline will kick in. So the Romans came and destroyed that temple and took it apart brick by brick. Um, Jesus would always sort of act kind of like a shock jock, I guess. Uh, that's, one of, that's one of the things I really like about Jesus. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's like a shock jock. He just throws something at you that you're not even ready for. Um, so the disciples are calling attention to the temple. They're so proud of it. 
Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus, as a shock jock, says the whole thing is going to be taken apart stone by stone. And that probably shocked them more than anybody else. But that's what happened to Temple Number 2. It was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel has had no temple. Now, before we talk about Temple 3, which is the temple that the Antichrist is going to desecrate, according to the prophecy that we're reading here, let me make you aware of Temple Number 4. Temple Number 3 will be destroyed just like the first two temples were destroyed. I think the futuristic temple number three will be destroyed in the seventh bowl judgment because when the seventh bowl judgment is unleashed, it basically says every, it's the greatest earthquake in history. You know, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. You know, islands are destroyed, mountains are destroyed. So I'm thinking if the earthquake is going to be that severe, it's going to destroy temple number three. But as we move into the millennial kingdom, there will be temple number four, which is articulated or described prophetically in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. So I'm, I'm seeing that fourth temple being built after the second advent of Christ, in that kingdom age during the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of people that will try to say, no, let's drag temple number four into the eternal state because they really don't believe in a thousand-year kingdom. Even though the Bible says six times before the eternal state comes, there's going to be a thousand-year kingdom. Yeah, but what does thousand-year kingdom really mean? Well, here's what it means. You ready? It means before the eternal state comes, there's going to be a thousand-year kingdom. I don't have any special knowledge to give you beyond what the text clearly says. But if you don't believe in that, there's kind of a tendency to take these prophecies and jam them into the eternal state, the last two chapters of the Bible. And you can't do that. Because the book of Revelation tells you what will not be in the eternal state. There won't be any Satan. There won't be any sea. There won't be any death, crying, mourning, or pain. There won't be any sun or moon. And then verse 22 says there'll be no temple. There won't be any night. There won't be any evil. And there won't be any curse. So that disqualifies putting temple number four into the eternal state. Uh, for one thing, in the eternal state, there's no more death, crying, or pain because the curse is not just rolled back. It's totally done away with. Revelation 21 and verse 4 says of the eternal state, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. Now, a temple that's described by Ezekiel could not exist in that environment. You say, well, why not? 
because of Ezekiel 45, verse 22. You should jot that verse down. Ezekiel 45, verse 22, describing temple number four, says, On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. Well, let's just throw this into the eternal state. You can't do that because in the eternal state there's no sin, right? Ezekiel 45 verse 28 talks about a sin offering. So it doesn't fit the eternal state. And if that weren't enough, what does John say describing the eternal state in Revelation 21 verse 22? I saw no temple in it. (laughs) For the glory of God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So John says in the eternal state there's not going to be a temple because you're going to have the Shekinah glory of God present. And I've tried to share this with people who ignore the millennium and they want to drag this into the eternal state. And I've tried to show them this passage, you know, where John says, I, I didn't see a temple. And they'll come up with some weird explanation like, well, it's, it's really there. It's just John didn't see it. I mean, come on. Like God only showed him a little snapshot of the eternal state. He didn't show him the temple, you know, that was somewhere else. No, the Bible is very clear that there won't be a temple in the, the eternal state. So where do you put temple number four? You can't put it into the church because right now, what is the temple of God? Our bodies. God doesn't have two temples. I mean, he is dwelling now within the church corporately, where two or three are gathered. There I am in your midst. And then 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, as the Corinthians are contemplating or involved in litigation against each other and sexual immorality, Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So that currently is God's temple. But Ezekiel is talking about an actual building, an actual construction. And only if you want to take Ezekiel's details, which, by the way, are mind-numbing. Are some of you going to be on the, you have these New Year's Read Through the Bible in a Year programs? I mean, this is the time to think about it, right? Because New Year's is tomorrow. There's all these programs you can get on and reading through the Bible through the year. I would encourage you to do that if you don't have a New Year's resolution I just gave you one, right? <laughs> read through the Bible in a year. You know, most Christians have never really read through the whole Bible. It's very sad. So why not make 2024 different and personally read through the Bible in a year? There's tons of programs you can get on um, that will help you to do that. So when you're reading through the Bible in a year and you get to Ezekiel 40 through 48... All you have to do is send me an email and say, Pastor, I'm at Ezekiel 40 through 48, and I'll start praying for you. <laughs> because it's just uh, it's just de- mind-numbing detail. The, the, the detail and the specificity there is just unreal. It's unbelievable. And so there's no way that that building can be allegorized away and turned into the human body. You can't do that. That's like a real 
construction. And so the question is, where do you put it? It doesn't fit today. It doesn't fit the church. And it doesn't fit the eternal state. So where do you put it? The only place it logically fits is in the thousand-year kingdom, which will precede the eternal state. Because the thousand-year kingdom is very different than the eternal state. I notice a lot of people are sort of lumping the eternal state and the thousand-year kingdom together. You cannot do that if you're a faithful Bible reader and Bible student. Those are two totally different eras. In the thousand-year kingdom, you'll still have sin. Now, not amongst us, because we'll be in resurrected bodies, but amongst the survivors who happen to be believers at the end of the great tribulation period, they'll enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies and repopulate the earth, and that's why the sin nature is passed down. You have actually two groups of people living in the millennial kingdom. But the eternal state is totally different. Sin is removed. In the millennium, the curse is restrained. In the eternal state, you've seen the passage earlier, Revelation 21, verse 4, the curse is removed. In the millennium, there'll still be death. Isaiah 65, verse 20 says says that. And it talks about a person who reaches the age of 100 and dies. Everybody's going to sit around and say, Ah, what a shame, such a young man died. So the curse is sort of pulled back, I guess, but it's not removed because death is still a reality, not amongst us, because we're in resurrected bodies at the point of the rapture, ruling and reigning over the population with Jesus Christ, but amongst the descendants of the tribulation survivors who entered the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies. Matthew 25 Verses 31 through 46 talks about that in the sheep and goat judgment, as does Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. In the millennium, you've got mortals and resurrected people living together. You say, well, no way, that can't happen. Well, you may say, no way, but your Bible says, way. Yes, way. No way, way. Um, because you have a situation in between Christ's resurrection and ascension. The book of Acts talks about this, which we're studying on Wednesday nights. Not, not this Wednesday night, but the next Wednesday night. Because I don't think we're having Wednesday night service this Wednesday, are we? So if you show up this Wednesday, you'll think you missed the rapture. You'll be as confused as the Thessalonians were, right? But in between the ascension, resurrection of Jesus and the ascension, there's 40 days there where Jesus is in a resurrected body and he's fellowshipping with the the disciples who are in non-resurrected bodies. And they're talking and they're actually touching his hands and his feet like Thomas And they're asking him questions about the kingdom. He's answering. And they're having breakfast together. So if that situation between resurrected and non-resurrected could happen for 40 days, what's the problem with it happening for a 1,000 years? 
It's just between us, church-age saints in resurrected bodies, and tribulation-believing survivors in non-resurrected bodies. So you have a interpooling of mortals and resurrected people in the thousand-year kingdom, but by the time we get to the eternal state in the last two chapters of the Bible, you'll only be dealing with resurrected people. In the millennial kingdom, you'll still have to evangelize people. Because everybody that enters it will be believers, but not necessarily their children. Or their grandchildren. Or their great-grandchildren. And in fact, by the time you get to the end of the thousand years, it looks like the world's filled with unbelievers. Because the Lord, they lead a, they lead a revolt against the Lord. And the Lord brings down fire and destroys them instantaneously. And from that point on, we move, we roll into the eternal state after the great white throne judgment. So in the eternal state, though, there's no need for evangelism because everybody there is resurrected. The millennium is a renovation of this present earth. It's not a new earth yet. It's kind of like the Lord takes a coat of wet paint and throws it over the existing earth to make it look decent. So it's a renovation, but the eternal state is a new creation entirely. The thousand years is temporary. The eternal state, just like its name conveys, is forever. The, the thousand years is transitional. It's a time period where we're being transitioned from the tribulation period and second advent into the eternal state. But the eternal state is non-transitional. Because we're going to rule and reign in the eternal state for how long? Forever and ever. And you say, well, pastor, that was exhaustive. I'm, I'm exhausted. Glad you took us through that chart. I'm glad you don't have any other charts on that. Oh, wait, there's one more here. <laughs> Sorry, false hope. The millennium is timed a thousand years. The eternal state is forever. No time element in it at all. Except, um, it, it does talk there about how the tree, trees of life will bear their fruit in their season. I think it uses the expression monthly. So it seems to me that there are calendar units in the eternal state, but my point is the eternal state never stops. The millennium does. Uh, the millennium there is luminaries. In fact, the sun, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26. Here the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. The sun, S-U-N, is going to be seven times brighter. So if you're into suntan lotion, that would be a good time to apply it. Revelation 21 and 22 says there are no luminaries. There's no sun, S-U-N, because who's illuminating the eternal state? The sun, S-O-N. There's no more stars. And it's in the millennium that we have this temple with a sin offering and bloody sacrifices. And when I say that, those that are involved in um, non-millennial eschatology, reform theology, they, they just go ballistic. They say, how in the world can you teach animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ 
rendered animal sacrifices null and void? And there's actually answers to that. But this is the first thing they want to talk about because they see it or perceive it as a weakness in our theological system. In fact, if you get into any kind of open discussion with them, any kind of debate, even though our camp has been faithful in exegeting hundreds and thousands of Bible passages, they don't want to talk about any of those Bible passages. They want to talk about animal sacrifices. It's almost like it's the first thing they bring up. Well, the truth of the matter is Paul the Apostle in Acts 21:26 issued an animal sacrifice. Write, write this down. Acts 21:26, And he did it not to add to the finished work of Jesus, because there isn't a human being that wrote more about the finished work of Jesus than the Apostle Paul. He did it to avoid being an offense to the Jews so he could gain a hearing before them. So that verse shows me you can have an animal sacrifice without injuring the finished work of Jesus. Some would say the animal sacrifices are for the um, sort of the hand cleansing of the priests who will still be mortals and have a sin nature. There may be a reference to that in Hebrews 9, verse 13. Some say the animal sacrifices are the same way we celebrate communion, which we will do next week at this church. When we take communion together, we're not adding to the finished work of Jesus. We're remembering what he did. So you go into the millennial kingdom in a world where death is almost uh, gone. Someone dies at the age of 100 and... They're thought accursed, Isaiah 65, verse 20. You're living in an almost perfect world. And then you go into the millennial temple and you see blood through animals being splattered and gushing everywhere. And you say to yourself, well, Lord, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for forgetting the price that you paid to make this millennial kingdom possible. Because I've gotten so comfortable here, um, I've forgotten all about death. And so you get a tangible reminder of it every time you go to Jerusalem and visit the um, Millennial Temple. So there are ways to argue for a Millennial Temple without injuring the finished work of Jesus, is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, People in the reform camp almost don't even know these other alternatives exist. They they want to focus on this and talk about it all the time because they look at it as kind of the Achilles heel in literal interpretation. You can't have a millennial kingdom and you can't have all of these prophecies being fulfilled literally because look at what these dispensationalists are doing. They're, They're bringing in animal sacrifices again. They're bringing in retrogression but there's actually ways to answer them. In the millennial kingdom, there's going to be death, but not the eternal state. In the millennial kingdom, there's satanic activity. Because Satan, who is in solitary confinement for a thousand years, is released after the thousand years, and he stirs up the rebellion 
that already exists in the hearts of the mortals. Because Jesus at that time in history is ruling with a rod of iron. And you better not step out of line or you're going to get it right away. Instantaneous justice. If you're looking for social justice, believe me, you're going to get it big time. Social justice on steroids in the millennial kingdom. So you have a lot of people that are born and they're really not believers and they don't like Jesus. And there's sort of this lingering resentment against Jesus. And they're told to go to Jerusalem to worship the king. And some people in Egypt, Zechariah 14, 16 through 18, won't want to go. And Jesus, who's ruling with a rod of iron, says, all right, here's immediate justice for you. No rain for your crops. And so Jesus, who knows the hearts of all people, sees this hatred that exists um, amongst these mortals, descendants of those who repopulated the earth following the tribulation period. Not, not you. You won't even have an ability to have resentment towards Jesus because you'll be in a resurrected body. I'm talking about the mortal descendants. Jesus sees this rebellion happening. And he says, okay, Satan, you're let out one more time from the abyss to expose what's happening in the hearts of these people. And Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9 says, those involved in the rebellion are as the sand of the seashore, which to me looks like a massive worldwide rebellion. And the Lord immediately, notice the instantaneous justice, immediately brings down fire from heaven, destroys the rebels, and then we roll into the great white throne judgment, and after that, the eternal state. So every dispensation, and that's what the millennial kingdom is, it's a dispensation. We teach seven dispensations here. Every dispensation ends in failure. Not the failure of God, the failure of humanity. Because in all seven dispensations, God is putting humanity through a test, beginning with the dispensation of innocence in Eden, which humanity failed. And you start moving through the dispensations, and you see that humanity fails every single time. And by the time you get to the thousand-year kingdom, you have these people that are living in a perfect world, almost. There's no poverty. There's no health care problem. There's no educational problem. And they hate Jesus' guts. And the only reason they obey him is they have to. So why would you hate Jesus' guts? Because you have a nature that hates God. And so the real problem with people is not their environment, but it's the fact that they have a nature that's at war with their creator. That's our problem. The world system will never diagnose the problem this way. The world system is always saying, well, just throw more money at it. Educational system is not working, throw more money at it. Healthcare system is not working, throw more money at it. Well, the truth of the matter is you can throw money at things forever and things will never change because the problem with man is man. (laughs) He has to be transformed from the inside. 
the dispensations demonstrate this because man fails in every dispensation. The kingdom is the ultimate colossal failure of humanity because here everybody is living in perfection and yet they rebel against God when they have an opportunity. So Satan, who is not thrown into the lake of fire like his cohorts, beast and antichrist, is put into the abyss for a thousand years. Why isn't he thrown into the lake of fire like the beast and the false prophet? Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, because God has one more purpose for Satan, to to stimulate this rebellion in the earth dwellers. So the devil is only kept around for God's purposes. The devil is God's devil. God uses the devil for his own purposes. And so, um, Satan, it's been a thousand years. You know, you've had uh, solitary confinement for a thousand years. Well, let's change the facts around. Maybe it wasn't solitary confinement. You've had rehabilitation for a thousand years. You've had a thousand years to get rehabilitated. So let's see if it works. Let the prisoner out, and he just goes right back to being the same old, you know, person, entity that he's always been since his fall, a murderer from the beginning. He exposes the evil in the hearts of the rebels. There's a worldwide rebellion against God, Revelation 28 and 9, social justice immediately because Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron. Fire comes down from heaven, destroys these rebels, and then we roll into the great white throne judgment and the eternal state, which is not a dispensation. The millennium is a dispensation. The eternal state is not a dispensation. That's why I'm uncomfortable with everybody jamming millennium and eternal state together. In the millennium, there's a test. Every dispensation has a test that ends in failure because at the end of the day, who gets the glory? God. What is, what is the purpose of allowing these dispensations to go forward ever since Eden so God would be glorified? Man gets no glory in the dispensational system. That's why dispensationalism is unpopular. It doesn't give us enough credit. And uh, after all, aren't things supposed to be getting better? I mean, we're supposed to be bringing in the kingdom, right? Well, according to dispensationalism, things are not getting better. They're not even getting better in the church. Things in the church are falling apart. You know, this whole Marxist, social justice, woke philosophy coming into the secular world... You know, you kind of expect that, but when it comes into the church, it kind of is a little bit of a shock. But the church is falling apart. The church is failing. Just like in the kingdom, man is going to fail. Well, Pastor, do you have any more warm and comforting thoughts for us? So all of that to say, that's, that's why I'm putting temple number four not into the eternal state, which is a dispensation because there's a test, excuse me, not into the eternal state, which is not a dispensation because there is no test, 
But the only place it fits is during that thousand-year kingdom where the curse is rolled back but not eradicated. So that is the future for temple number four, and then it will be dissolved by fire because the earth at the end of the millennial kingdom is going to be dissolved by fire. Second Peter 3, verse 7, verse 10, I think verses 12 and 13. So if you want your global warming, that's where to put your global warming. God is going to destroy everything by fire. And then from there we roll into the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And then from there we roll into the eternal state where there'll be no temple, there'll be no sin. It won't be a dispensation because there's no test. There is a test in the kingdom age, but there's no test in the eternal state. So that's where temple number four goes. But what we're talking about here, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4, is temple number three. When Paul says, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. That's talking about temple three. And ever since the destruction of temple number two at the hands of the Romans, the nation of Israel has not had a third temple. And yet prophecy demands that it must be rebuilt and functioning for the Antichrist to desecrate. Uh, A few scriptures, if I could, on temple number three. Matthew 24, verses 15 and following. Therefore, when you, Israel, see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, we read that earlier, Daniel 9.27, standing in the holy place, repeating what Antiochus did, by setting up a pagan image in the temple. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in San Diego, California, no. Let those who are in Judea, see that? That's Israel language. They must flee to the mountains. But pray that your flight will not be on the winter or on the Sabbath. See the Jewish language there? Because you're not supposed to travel on the Sabbath if you're Jewish. Daniel 11.31, even before we get to Daniel 11.31, a few other verses on this third temple. Daniel 12.11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's temple three. Mark 13, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, this horrific image, similar to what Antiochus did with Temple 2, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Revelation 11, 1 and 2. This is another reference to temple number three. Some of these scriptures I have there in parenthesis. 
Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Why measure it? It's being measured to show that it falls short of the divine standard. Because this is the Antichrist temple that he will desecrate. Leave out Revelation 11, verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Another reference to temple number 3 is Revelation 13, verse 15. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So Antiochus set up an image of Zeus. Antichrist and false prophet are going to set up an image of the Antichrist that even has the ability to talk. Now, how do you make any sense out of that a hundred years ago? You don't have talking statues. But in our generation, it's pretty easy to understand, right? With artificial technology and all of these things that we now have at our, at our fingertips. Daniel 11.31 says concerning Antiochus, forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. That's the image of Zeus that Antiochus set up in around 167 B.C. What did Solomon say? What has been will be again, but greater. You'll actually have temple number three that the Antichrist will enter, desecrate, and set up an image of himself within. So the big question is, is our world being set up for that? And if I remember right, I said I was going to answer that next time. And guess what? It's two minutes before I'm supposed to stop talking. So, unfortunately, what you got today was an introduction. And so I'll show you how the world is being set up for temple number three uh, next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for the way it speaks into our lives. Help us to be good stewards of these things in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Happy.